This is Coast to Coast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys. One from each coast, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. You can only guess what will happen next. Coast to Coast is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Coast to Coast uh, on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts. And uh, we will be joined shortly by my co-host, Craig, J. Craig Williams from California. I write the blog Law Sites at www.legalline.com, and Craig writes the blog May It Please the Court at mayitpleasethecourt.com. Today's topic for our program is going to be big firms, big business. We're going to talk about... Uh, uh, mega firms in the United States with hundreds of employees and offices across the country and around the world. Big, big law firms these days are being run like corporations with PR and marketing departments, technology staff, and even financial services for clients. Uh, many of these firms have, have grown through uh, mergers and acquisitions and uh, have uh, uh, continued to expand uh, within the United States and globally. We have uh, two guests today to help us in our discussion. Uh, joining us, first of all, is Bruce McEwen. Bruce is a lawyer, a business person, and consultant to law firms. Uh, Bruce is well-known to those in the blogosphere for his uh, widely read blog, Adam Smith Esquire, in which he talks about the business side of law firms. He is a Charter member of the New York State Bar's Section on Law Practice Management and has been nominated as a fellow in the College of Law Practice Management. Uh, and Bruce will be an adjunct professor at SUNY Stony Brook's Graduate School of Business, teaching the core course Strategic Technology and Innovation in their MBA program exclusively for law firm leaders. This is a first of its kind in the country. Uh, welcome to the program, Bruce. Thank you. Glad to be here. And for those of you listening, I am coming to you from Manhattan. Right, and also joining us today is uh, Eric Sinrod. Eric uh, is a returning guest to Coast to Coast. He's a partner in the San Francisco office of Dwayne Morris, which is uh, among the 100 uh, largest firms in the United States. I believe the NLJ uh, 250 this year had it at number 70, uh, with more than 600 lawyers. In addition to legal services, Dwayne Morris has independent affiliates employing approximately 100 professionals engaged in other disciplines with offices in major markets and as part of an international network of independent law firms, Dwayne Morris represents clients across the nation and around the world. As a lawyer at Dwayne Morris, Mr. Sinrod, with his trial, appellate, and overall litigation practice, uh, uh, practices before the Supreme Court and other courts, uh, and is also a prolific writer with columns in USA Today, CNET, appears, columns appear on Law.com, Fine Law, and he's a, a frequent guest on radio and TV. Welcome to the show, Eric Senrod. Good day. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Uh, well, let's, let's start uh, with sort of the general question, and I'll, and I'll start with you, Bruce, and, and ask, uh, uh, are we, will we continue to see uh, big firms getting bigger? What, what's, what's likely to be the trend with respect to big firms? Is it going to be a stabilization, or what's going to be coming down the road? Well, this has been a, a theme uh, on my on my site, as you as you probably know, Bob. And 
certainly to date, and by, by to date I really mean that, say, since 2000, since the, uh, since the dot-com meltdown, um, we have seen uh, the big firms getting bigger, and it's my strong belief that there is definitely a, a bifurcation, if you will, in, in the industry structure emerging. At the one end, at the high end, the large end, you have uh, truly, truly global um, firms with easily upwards of a thousand lawyers, and we have half a dozen firms today uh, that have annual revenue in excess of a billion dollars a year. And just for comparison's sake, uh, both JetBlue and Harley-Davidson uh, have revenue of just about exactly a billion dollars a year. So you can see that these firms are sizable enterprises. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, you have uh, a bunch of boutiques, maybe litigation boutiques, intellectual property boutiques, and some regional powerhouses, you know, firms that are big in, in Georgia, firms that are big in the Pacific Northwest. Um, what you're not seeing so, so much of anymore are the 400 to 500 lawyer, quote-unquote, full-service national firms. That doesn't seem to be what the Fortune 1000 uh, client base is looking for anymore. But to really answer your question as to whether we're going to see this continuing, the signs so far are it's not abating uh, in any way, shape, or form. Um, some people question whether uh, conflicts will ultimately bring it to a halt. You know, conflicts obviously escalate the larger firm gets. Uh, some people think it'll grind to a halt just because these enterprises are getting increasingly difficult to manage. Um, for my money, the jury's still out, and until we see it stop, I'm going to assume it'll continue. Eric, you're uh, a partner in a in a large firm, uh, not a thousand, but six hundred plus lawyers. Uh, what's, what's your perspective on, on what's what's driving this? Why why are firms growing at the, in this way? Yeah, and I can actually speak from inside the fishbowl and from personal experience. Um, I left a firm six years ago that was roughly about a hundred attorneys, a firm called Hancock, Rothard, and Bunchoff in San Francisco. Came to Dwayne Morris because I was very much attracted by the national platform of a firm that had more attorneys, more offices around the country, more practice groups and specialties and came here at a time when the firm was probably about 300 attorneys. Um, now, six years later, we're more than 600 attorneys, as you noted in your opening comments. And in fact, just last month, we acquired my prior law firm. Dwayne Morris acquired Hancock, Rothard, and Bunchoff because my former partners, now again my current partners, saw the attraction of having a more national and, frankly, international platform from which to grow practices. So... Uh, I think you asked the question, you know, what's driving this? I think uh, many things are driving it. You, sometimes when you get more people together, there are more synergies, there's more collective energy. Uh, it can foster entrepreneurialism. There's an internal marketplace where people cross-refer business to different geographic centers within a law firm uh, across different specialties. For me, you know, I had clients at my prior law firm that had various needs and, you know, for example, if there was a tax issue, we didn't have a tax person there to handle it. So I'd have to refer the work out. So that was very frustrating. So now what's very satisfying for me and my clients is when a need comes up, if it's in Chicago or Boston or Atlanta or Miami or Houston, 
or New York or whatever, whatever geographic location in the country, generally we can handle it. If there's a specialty need we, we need to draw upon, whether it's bankruptcy, environmental, labor, you know, we have the expertise. Um, the, the, the problem, though, that does emerge once in a while is conflicts. When you bring more and more attorneys together with you know, various representations across the board, uh, you, know, you, you send in your conflict check when you're trying to bring in a new matter, and you kind of cringe when the result comes back because you don't know if there's going to be a conflict or not. Um, the good news is, at least from my own personal experiences, you know, oftentimes when there is a conflict, you can get a waiver. And even when you cannot get the waiver, my, I have found that the opportunities afforded by being at a firm that's national in scope far outweigh the, uh, the engagements that come along that you can't have or can't follow up on because of conflicts. So I mean, it sounds like you're saying this is being driven both from within and without, that, that there's uh, impetus within the firm to, to be able to offer more services and, and uh, be, in, be on a more global national platform, and, and that clients are also pushing for this from outside. That's right. There's the external and the internal marketplaces. And the internal marketplace within a large law firm is, is rich and diverse, and, and attorneys will refer work back and forth to each other, and that's a way of filling their plates. And also you have sophisticated, large-scale clients in a global economy where borders are breaking down that have needs for counsel uh, in various places and with different expertise, and they don't want to go necessarily to, you know, 15 different law firms with their needs. Uh, if they are happy with a, a particular attorney or a firm, they can go there, they can have somebody be their quarterback uh, and, uh, you know, supervise and make sure that all the work's being done in a consistent, efficient way to the client's liking across the board. Uh, well, Bruce, let me turn to you and ask, if, if this is being driven partly, partly by the client, by the customer, how, how does this change the way firms uh, deliver services to their clients? What, what are they able to do better or differently by being larger? Well, I, th- I, think, um, I think Eric really alluded to something. Um, the, 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 big co- the big companies, be they U.S. or, or uh, headquartered elsewhere, are for all intents and purposes they're all they're all multinational now and i think that they want their uh their law firm certainly their their primary law firm roster to kind of match the geographical footprint uh of the corporation and that means that for uh most uh large corporations and certainly the amlaw 25 uh firms these days um, you need to be in london you probably ought to be thinking about Hong Kong if you're not already there. Uh, you probably want to be somewhere on the continent of Europe, Paris or Frankfurt are, are, uh, are very popular choices. And in the United States, um, there are three places you really need to be, uh, New York, California, and Washington, D.C. In fact, uh, more firms actually have an office, more uh, NLJ 250 firms have an office in Washington, D.C., than uh, any other city. It doesn't need to be a large office, but it needs to be a presence because of the obvious um, uh, fact that we live in a heavily regulated world these days. Uh, The reasons you need to be in New York and California uh, are are economic. Uh, New York is obviously the financial capital, and California is, uh, in many people's uh, minds, the technology and sort of creativity capital. And certainly it's... um, it's, it's the largest uh, economic uh, state just taken on its own. So those are the three places you need to be uh, aside from abroad. 
Well, it strikes me that uh, apart from location, another way that firms are, are working differently with their clients as they get larger is that they're kind of repackaging their practices to focus more on, on the needs of the client. I mean, rather than say we have an employment practice, they may say we have a, a, a technology practice that can handle IP and employment and, and uh, patents. That's right, and, and, and I think else. Eric really was also laid the groundwork for that observation with which I, with which I concur. More and more firms are organizing themselves not to reflect their internal departments, you know, not around litigation and tax and real estate, but they're organizing themselves to reflect their clients. So they might have uh, a biotech team, and lawyers on the biotech team would probably, well, would certainly include some intellectual property people, obviously, would include some regulatory people, maybe with FDA experience, would probably include an employment lawyer because you can imagine that there's going to be immigration issues bringing in, you know, Ph.D. biochemists from from India and wherever. Um, and you're absolutely right. The law firms that are that are astute, and there are several in the in the Amlaw 25 that I could point to, um, are are definitely reconfiguring themselves to deploy groups of lawyers that match the client's portfolio of legal needs, as it were, and, and those groups are dynamic as, as the client's needs change, the members of the group uh, join and, and drop off. Can we try again to bring Craig into the conversation? Are you, are you there, Craig? I'm here. Thank you. Welcome. And I just wanted to find out, Bruce, what your thoughts are. Are these large firms really just groups of small firms? Well, you know, that's, that's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, Every law firm will tell you that they have a distinct culture, and then when they try to describe it, they generally uh, become fairly inarticulate. <laughs> um, but I think that um, a lot of firms do have a, a unified culture. I mean, I, I happen to believe that there is such a thing as a as a Skadden Arps, for example, culture or a... Uh, a Wachtell culture, although Wachtell is is large in revenue, it's not large in numbers of lawyers. Um, but there are there are definitely firms that that have a um, a distinct unitary uh, feel, and to the extent that firms don't, that they're just you know co-ops, if you will, of lawyers or of practice groups. Um, I think those firms are going to be at a uh, something of a competitive disadvantage, and I think they're going to need to um, instill a sense of of a common culture if they uh, if they intend to thrive going down the road. And I would just I would just my only other observation would be this is not unique to law firms. Um, certainly, if you look across the corporate landscape in America, there are plenty of uh, of corporations that themselves have no cohesive culture, and uh, tons of, of ink have been spilled by the management consultants telling you that right, those well, firms we've, are... We've all seen that. I, I wonder, we were talking with Eric before we started recording, and it, it, Eric, I, it sounded from what you were saying that, that you, you have found uh, a fairly uh, healthy and supportive culture in your, your large firm experience. Is that right? Well, that's true, and I think, you know, you've heard the phrase location, location, location. Well, I think when it comes to growing major law firms, the phrase really should be culture, culture, culture. It's vitally important. 
uh, to keep all the moving parts together and moving in the right direction. And uh, that's not to say that one culture is good and one culture is bad, but a law firm needs to define itself and attract like-minded people together so they can be cohesive and share a common mission and stay on the same path. So at our firm, our culture is very much one of consensus, uh, of getting along, uh, you know, of sharing and friendship and uh, collegiality. That's our culture, and it works for us. And so there have been instances where we've considered bringing on individual partners or entire practice groups or even firms, and these are people that are extremely profitable, and we've looked at them and said, no, we're not comfortable. We don't think having that group or that person or those people in our firm would fit um, our personality. And so we've actually sometimes said no to money and yes to culture. And I think in the long run, when you say yes to culture, you're actually saying yes in the the greater scheme to money as well uh, because the people here are all rowing uh, to the same beat in the same direction. And I think every law firm that's growing needs to try to achieve that uh, based on the personality group and the culture they want to have. But Eric, across the country and across the world with your uh, with offices that you've got, is it possible to have a unitary culture? Isn't some of the culture dictated by the environment that it's in and the different clients that it serves? People are people, and people have different personalities, so I don't necessarily agree with that. Uh, you can practice tax law in London, or you, know, you can be an employment attorney in Chicago, and you can still have common ground in terms of uh, how you like to work with other people, how you like to manage a business, how you like to share profits, how you like to supervise employees, how you like to look toward the future, either, either conservatively or, or aggressively, uh, financially. Um, so I'm not sure it really matters where the person is or what their specialty necessarily might be when you're talking about you know, how to run and live within a law firm. How do you communicate your culture across the firm? Well, when we consider bringing on new people, I think that's the best way to explain it. You know, they're, they're interviewed. Uh, they meet a variety of people uh, within a practice group and within the office they're going to go to. They come, hopefully, to, to meetings. And there's just a time period and a vetting where one determines whether there's a comfort level. And we're very clear in terms of what our culture is. Um, and for some people, that's attractive, and for others, not. Um, so, you know, it's not a perfect science. It's not to say it works all the time, but I would say, uh, you know, in the main, we're doing very well with it, and I've been you, very happy about that. Do you that. communicate that culture to your clients? Do you think that's a benefit that you can provide to your clients? We do communicate to our clients how we have a teamwork and, you know, working together, and we hope that that creates efficiencies and streamlining so that the clients, you know, don't feel that they're, for example, you know, being double-billed because somebody brings in a matter and then passes it off to somebody else in a different office or with a different practice skill. Um, and I think the clients are receptive to that. Um, so, and I think just by getting to know the different attorneys, they're, they're learning that we're people that are, you know, client-friendly. Uh, we like to be very responsive and communicate actively with our clients so they're never left in the dark. And that, I think that's part of the same internal culture we have here that we try to convey externally. We're going to take a uh, short break uh, and ask if you could just stay with us for a few minutes, and we'll be back to wrap up uh, after this. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. 
From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. Coast to Coast is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Coast to Coast. This is Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Craig Williams. Please welcome back Bruce McEwen, lawyer, businessman, consultant to law firms, and Eric Sinrod, a partner in the San Francisco office of Dwayne Morris, one of the country's largest 100 law firms. Um, there's a question I wanted to toss out to first to uh, Eric, and then Bruce can maybe follow it up. But comparing, and, and I come from a small law firm now, uh, having worked for a very large law firm before, but... Uh, what Eric, what kind of cases do you think are better served by law firms and which cases can't be handled by big law firms? Hmm. Good question. What cases are best served by large law firms? Well, there are cases where you have you know, witnesses spread around the country, for example. Uh, you have uh, situations where there's repeat litigation. You have a certain type of fact pattern that, uh, you know, for example, say a product liability suit where there are products that have been sold across the country, and then there's allegations of defects in the products and lawsuits start springing up. You, know, you can hire a national law firm that will develop a program to handle those cases effectively, and they don't have to reinvent the wheel all of the time. Um, you can have a situation where you have a client on one coast, uh, and there's going to be a lot of factual involvement on that coast in terms of preparing witnesses and harvesting documents, yet the lawsuit itself is venued on the other coast. I have a big antitrust case like that right now myself. Um, in terms of cases that a large law firm should not or might not be best suited to handle, I'm thinking about that because, you know, a large law firm is still a collection of people. And in any given office, you will have, you know, skilled attorneys uh, that are, you know, local and indigenous to that particular area and will have their own skill set. Um, perhaps the one issue that might be thought of is, you know, overhead and, and hourly rates and, and cost. And there are certain cases that are small enough that perhaps they're not best handled by uh, a firm that, you know, charges a certain amount. Uh, and so sometimes, you know, clients with, you know, relatively smaller matters might want to go to 
a small shop where, frankly, the cost might not be very high. Of course, once in a while, you get what you pay for, so you have to be careful. Bruce? Uh, I would I would kind of um, second Eric's Eric's remarks, and I'd and I'd also I'd also note that you know there are a lot of industries. Financial services is is one of my favorite examples where there's plenty of room for uh, you know the Goldman Sachs and, and Citicorps of the world to coexist uh, coexist with your neighborhood you know check cashing uh, window and, and things like that. So the fact that uh, you know, there are big firms and small firms coexisting side by side. Uh, doesn't surprise me. Something that I, I wonder a lot about when I think about big firms is what 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 is the impact of of, of this growth uh, on the rest of the legal profession, on the fees that lawyers charge, on the kinds of cases that they take. Uh, what what about how do big firms uh, spill over uh, onto smaller and medium sized firms, if at all, Bruce? Um, you know that's 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 that is an interesting question. A higher percentage of all lawyers today uh, work for Amlaw 200 firms than say 10 years ago. Um, the Amlaw the Amlaw 200 is is growing. In other words, in, at least in terms of headcount and revenue, those are the measures you want to look at um, faster than the legal community is as a whole. Um, their 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 market share, if you will, is increasing. And uh, my um, my take on it is is an optimistic one. I think that, as Eric, it sounds like might might tell us, uh, opportunities in large firms can be more professionally exciting than in than in smaller firms. Certainly, to people um, you know with the right kind of personality. And I think that. Uh, you know, my own taste. Certainly, when I was practicing, I was in large firms and, and preferred it that way. And I think that the opportunity for a greater percentage of lawyers in the U.S. to be in large firms is is only a good thing. I think it's broadening. Eric, do you have any thoughts on that? The question being, what's the spillover effect on smaller firms vis-a-vis the fact that there are larger firms out there? Well, this, this sort of spiraling growth of, of larger firms, uh, firms getting bigger, charging higher hourly rates, uh, it, it, how does that impact the profession as a whole? Well, and I'm not sure necessarily that the rates are tied to the firms growing. I mean, you, you sort of couple those together. You know, the marketplace will allow people to charge what they can command, and if you charge too much vis-a-vis what your services are worth, ultimately you're not going to have those clients. So I would divorce those two. Um, it just so happens that sometimes the higher rates are at the larger firms because sometimes the most skilled people are there. You know, if you want to have the person to handle this particular issue and this person's handled it successfully before the United States Supreme Court three or four times, they might charge a little bit more because they've gotten those results. Um, Getting back to the, the other part of the question, you know, just the, the effect of large law firms generally, um, I, I agree with the other speaker that this is, you know, a positive development overall. I think it doesn't mean that lawyers that are not in large law firms are not going to have a job. You know, some people like to practice on their own or with just, you know, a couple friends or colleagues or they want to have a very narrow niche in a, in a, a small, you know, location and, and, and do it well and be known for it, be known in their local bar and not necessarily then be gobbled up by a large law firm, and there's opportunity for that. So, I mean, it's a fact of life in America. There's a lot of legal need out there. 
There are plenty of lawyers servicing that need, and they can do that in, in, in different ways. And the emergence of large law firms is just one component of that. Well, that's, a, I think, going to wrap it up for our show today. We'd like to thank our guests for, for being with us today, Eric uh, and Bruce. Eric, in case somebody does want to hire you, how can they get a hold of you? Oh, that's great. Thank you. Um, well, I have my own website, actually, sinrodlaw.com, S-I-N-R-O-D-L-A-W.com. But our law firm's website is duanemorris.com, D-U-A-N-E, morris.com. My email is ejsinrod, E-J-S. I-N-R-O-D at DwayneMorris.com. And Bruce, you have a blog, and how can people get a hold of you? You can go to what I hope is the memorable Adam Smith-esque blog at AdamSmithESQ.com. Just Adam Smith run together, ESQ.com. Great. Well, thanks to both of you for joining us today on Coast to Coast. That's it for today's show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with Jake Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Coast to Coast has been sponsored by Law.com. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.